please um, feel most welcome to raise any questions that you have. Uh, the question that you were talking about, who am I? Could this be asked during infinite space or nothingness? During what space? Infinite space, the fifth jhana. Um, yeah, in the um, first or second jhana, then conceptual thought is still quite uh, workable. Vitaka and vichara, the um, sustained and applied uh, thought, uh, still very uh, easily accessed in those states of concentration. But uh, the, the level of concentration that's usually most um, fertile or helpful is just uh, what they call access concentration, so the mind isn't sort of deeply absorbed into a single object. So what they call uh, access concentration, na neighborhood concentration, that, uh, so that there's uh, enough ability to pay attention to the present without the attention wandering and watching the, the five khandas uh, coming and going and changing. So. That's the uh, most fertile territory for this kind of practice. Thank you. Hi, Ajahn. I have two questions, actually. The first one is uh, related to the practice. So uh, how, how does this practice help in uh, real uh, scenarios, like in terms of extreme scenarios that we face in real life? So example, in, in, in scenarios of war. In what? War, <laughs> or uh, we we face some issues related to the day-to-day -day activities. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, when people uh, refer to everyday activity as real life, and uh, dharma practice as as not not real, uh, it kind of implies that dharma practice is not real life. I would say, oh, oh they talk about being in the monastery. Well, what out in the real world? Like, I find myself putting quote marks around the word real. <laughs> the, uh, so uh, the, the real world is the world of our experience. And that can involve a quiet place like Deer Park Monastery, or it can involve uh, a battlefield, or it can involve you know, the um, Delhi airport, or, or um, negotiating with the traffic in, uh, on the street in, uh, in beer. <laughs> yeah. that, uh, the, the, the real world is the world of our experience. So I, I, first of all, I would n not uh, support that division uh, in terms of being on retreat or being in a situation like this being any less real than when you... Uh, but I understand what you mean. It's like where we have to perform as a person, we have a, a jobs, responsibilities, roles in the, in, the, in the work we do, in the family, in the society, and so on and so forth. So I understand what you mean. But uh, the, the more that we are able to relate to the world of our experience and uh, the, the beings around us from a place of selflessness, then the more we're, the, the jitta, the heart, is able to respond with uh, an unbiased attitude. You know the word bias? So like not distorted by fear or aversion, greed or, or delusion. And so that the more that the mind is free of self-view, then the, kind of the better decisions that we make, the more courageous that we are. Because it's a, it's a strange thing that, um, that when we talk about letting go or non-attachment, it can come, again, we were talking about this the other day, it can seem like a, we're trying to make ourselves very passive or just 
um, inert. But if I would say if non-attachment and and such like are are developed in a skillful way, then we find ourselves more ready to act. So non-attachment doesn't mean being passive or inactive. You can actually find yourself being more courageous, more ready to speak up, more ready to risk, because there's a recognition that things don't really belong to us in the first place. And the sense of, well, what will they think of me? Or what will I lose? They, they fall away, because it's the, the, the motivating spirit is much more what's useful for this situation or and then when the the mind says well i can do that well why shouldn't it be me why should it be someone else okay then you find you're you're ready to step forward in terms of war and uh, conflicts in the in the workplace in the family and uh, which might feel like a war zone <laughs> the more that the heart is free of self-view and conceit and invested in ego-centered attitudes, then the more you're able to listen to other people, you're more able to empathize with others, and you're, you're less reactive and much more responsive. So reaction and response are not the same thing. So what I mean by that, react, reactivity is um, something pleasant happens and you, you, you immediately lean towards it and grab hold. Something unpleasant happens and you, you push away or you, you, um, you contend against it. That's a, like a reactive mind state. So when there's a lack of mindfulness and wisdom, then we tend to be reactive. Uh, we, we are unrestrained in our behaviors. Things that we like, we chase after. Things that we dislike, we push away. Things that we're afraid of, we, we run away from and call bad and, and dangerous. So to be responsive is where there's more mindfulness and wisdom in the mix. And so that you're in the middle of a family discussion, kind of things are getting very hot. And rather than, than like, well, I agree with him and I disagree with her, it's like to be responsive is like, well, this is getting very hot. <laughs> so um, what will be useful to respect everyone who's here and what can be said to guide things to a more balanced uh, say, uh, give things a more balanced direction or, or guide things in a more balanced way. So there's a spaciousness and a quality of consideration. Uh, the, the word consideration, uh, the English word sidder means a star. So consideration is like look, checking the stars. Okay, what, <laughs> what, are the, uh, what are the planets saying? Yeah. So it's like taking a reading of the present moment to consider, to, to see what the... Uh, the, 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 the feeling of the moment uh, indicates as a good way forward. So uh, the, the absence of self-view or not being dominated by self-centered habits is incredibly beneficial in um, worldly situations. Uh, I'm on about 20 committees. I'm, I'm the abbot of a monastery. I'm also the managing director of the company that is developing uh, Amravati Monastery. We have a. We just finished a two point two million pound project, and we just started an eleven million pound project. My name is at the top of the list, so I'm familiar with worldly responsibilities. I'm not trying to shame you or anything, but just don't think that worldly responsibility stops at the monastery gate. You know, these are like telephone number sized figures. These are pounds, not rupees. <laughs> 
or even euros. You know, so, um, so, uh, but that's uh, it, these things are incredibly helpful. You know, if you're sitting around a table at a business meeting, and there's differences of opinion, or or someone's really uh, you know, offended or upset because they haven't been included, then this is exactly the kind of skills that are needed to help say, oh, well, we forgot Sudanta. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah. Uh, uh, what, does, uh, what does Nick think about it? We, did, we forgot to ask him. Or, or like, oh, he's got very strong feelings about this aspect. And so the more you can be responsive in situations, whether it's in the family, in the boardroom, or in a war zone, then the more that things can be guided towards a skillful result. Even on the battlefield, you know, they, they, uh, uh, it's interesting that um, they did a survey um, a number of years ago now, but they spoke to whatever, World War II and Korean War, this is done in America, uh, World War II and Korean War veterans um, who were all so well into retirement age, so given kind of a like, complete sort of amnesty, your response won't be, won't be named or recorded. But we, we want to know what uh, your activity was on the battlefield, because in those wars there was quite a lot of face-to-face -face conflict between the combatants. It was close-up uh, conflict. And they found that more than 60% of the American soldiers, the infantry uh, uh, that were interviewed, aimed to miss. They deliberately missed their targets, more than 60%. Um, very consciously uh, aimed at, uh, so that uh, even on the battlefield, you know, conscience is operating. People know, I've been drafted, I'm in this because I don't really want to, and here we are, we're sharing this. Uh, this life and one of the early helpers at Chithurst Monastery in West Sussex he'd been in the he'd been drafted into the German army he was Austrian so he was uh, drafted in the German army and sent to the Russian front and uh, he was in that situation and he said he was in the in the trench he had this this other Russian soldier in his sights and he realized that guy has a mother he has a family I can't do this, and he deliberately shot over his head. So, so the, <laughs> the guy ducked down under cover, but uh, it was still with him. He said, "I'm, I'm really glad. I, I betrayed my orders, but I'm really glad I did, uh, because that, uh, that at that moment, I, I just saw that person has a life like I do, and uh, I can't do this. So that uh, uh, the, the more that we are." say, following the, these practices. And I wouldn't say rather than making, a, making us incompetent or impractical <laughs> or, or inert in... I would say the other world rather than the, the real world. <laughs> the, uh, the world of much more engagement and personal responsibility. Um, I mean, in, in a retreat like this, you can just be blob number one, row seven. You, know? you don't have to have a name or a story or a background. It's just... The, the guy on the first cushion in the seventh row, that's it. End of story. But uh, away from here, you're, you're not just Bob number one, row seven. You know, you have a family and a story and, a, and work and so on. But the, these principles um, are extraordinarily helpful in all those situations. I would say if you're picking up the, 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 the practice and it's making you more dissociated, more incapable and more... I say, um, 
ineffective or, or functioning disharmoniously with the people around you, then you're not picking it up in, a, in, the, in the best way. Yes. Morning, Ajahn. Ajahn, I have a few questions, please. Please, far um, away. I really found it helpful to know about the receptive aspect of loving-kindness, and I'm wondering if the other three immeasurables also have an uncommon receptive aspect. Ah, yes, yeah, good question. I would say so. Um, and then what are the, they? Uh, <laughs> the, well, the upeka, in a way, is more receptive than expressive in its character, equanimity or serenity in its own nature it's far more of a, of a, a pr- profoundly receptive quality equanimity but for the other two so um, compassion we often think of compassion as compassionate activity and the images of uh, Chenrezig or Guan Xi and Bodhisattva um, often Sometimes the, 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 it's, uh, there's the, uh, um, it's a, in a feminine form, sometimes a masculine form or, or kind of gender non-specific. But you often have this image of, of a thousand arms and, a th- and, and hands with holding different implements and different skillful means being demonstrated. Um, so that then we can relate to compassion as compassionate activity in all those things, you know, the, 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 the sutra book and the bottle of nectar and the sword and the, all the different tools that the compassion operates through. But uh, I'm not sure about Chenrezig, but certainly Avalokiteshvara, the Sanskrit, and then Guanxi uh, Yin in Chinese, Kanon in Japanese, they all have the meaning, the one who listens to the sound of the world. Avalokiteshvara, so that the core of compassion is listening, not activity. So that's symbolized right, right there in the very name for the Bodhisattva. And so that compassion is most fully exercised by listening, like paying attention to what's going on first, feeling, empathizing with the suffering of others, and then letting the action, the thousand hands and the thousand eyes, Operate and the different skillful means uh, that are available being being brought to bear. So uh, we can we can easily be compulsively helpful. You know, uh, speaking from personal experience, <laughs> always drawn into trying to fix people and fix things and make everything all right. And often it's I want you to be I want you to be happy so I'll feel okay. It's not spelled out like that, but your, your suffering makes me feel uncomfortable and I want you to stop suffering so I'll feel all right. That's a bit of a sweeping statement. but it, uh, So sometimes that uh, uh, our, what's apparently compassionate activity is more about our own sort of compulsiveness or our own anxiety. And uh, there's a passage I like to quote from a C.S. Lewis book C.S. Lewis was a Christian theologian as well as the one who wrote the Narnia Chronicles about the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. He was a Christian theologian. He was very popular as a public speaker. And uh, so one of the books that he wrote was called um, the, the Screwtape Letters. And it was advice from a, a demon who's been sent down to earth uh, asking advice from his uncle, this, uh, this other demon called Screwtape, uh, and, uh, for how to cause trouble on earth properly. Yeah, and uh, so doing his job is sort of causing confusion amongst the world. So very, it's very funny. Kind of, it's also 
interesting commentary on Christian theology. Anyhow, one of the um, the passages in there that really struck me in the screw tape letters is this, where the, the demon who's down in the world is talking about one of the people he's been working on. He says, uh, uh, I, I forget the, the precise wording of it, but it's something along, along the lines of, um, she is personally greatly moved to be caring for others, and the others have about them the look of the hunted. <laughs> like, who can I help? Who can I help? And like, oh my God. Oh, she's going to try and help me. Oh dear. You know. But that, that sense of, I want to be a helpful person. So it's, in a way, it's, it's a, a skillful and sincere motivation. But again, it gets taken over by self-view. Like, I want to be a helpful person, so I will feel good. Or I will impress other people. And so then that initial skillful motivation gets, <laughs> again, uh, hijacked, taken over by, by self-view. And uh, so I thought it was a very neat way of phrasing it. The, the, those who will be, uh, will be helped to kind of need to be hunted down and uh, are kind of shying away from the, the helper. So then mudita, uh, mudita means sympathetic joy or, or delight or joy at the good fortune of others. That's an extremely rare quality in the world. It doesn't get spoken of, even in Buddhist circles, very rarely do you see any like a Dhamma talk or even a retreat, let alone a retreat on the subject of mudita. So it's the opposite of jealousy or envy. Um, and so that the um, uh, mudita, sympathetic joy, one of the aspects of it is that it's, a, uh, in a way, the receptive quality or the kind of an inner quality of it is a, a lack of neediness in yourself. Like, uh, you don't need to have that parking place, so you're happy that somebody else got it. You don't need to have got the job. You can be happy that someone else got the job instead of you. That, you know, okay, you applied and, everyone, and you, you, know, you would have been glad if you got it, but, but uh, the other person got the job, oh, I'm happy for you. So the, the inner aspect is that it's, not, it's kind of not so much receptive, but the, it's more like the, that sense of inner fullness or, or contentment, the lack of neediness. I did a little booklet about the four sublime abidings, the four Brahma-viharas, and in the one on Medita, I, I kind of focused on the uh, on the kind of the opposites of each of the or, or different approaches to each of the four. So the one on loving kindness is called "I'm right, you're wrong," uh, and the uh, the one on compassion was called "Don't push, just use the weight of your own body." Uh, so again, not being pushy with your compassion or or compulsive, uh, but the one on Medita, I chose to focus on uh, addiction. Because usually when people talk about the opposite or the obstructions to medita, they talk about jealousy or envy. And I was reflecting on it and I thought, you know, <laughs> in another way, uh, the opposite of mudita is focusing solely on my happiness, my need, what I, what I want, what I've got to have. And so that's kind of where addictive behavior is not just addiction to alcohol or drugs, but addiction to approval. <laughs> You know, addiction to, uh, say, uh, success or to being liked, you know, subtle qualities of, of approval. And I, so I thought, well, actually, in a way, you could see that uh, uh, the more there's a sense of inner fullness or contentment, wholeness, then um, you're ready to, to, uh, to have mudita for others. The, the main focus in your life is my need, what I've got to have,
obviously profound addictions like alcohol or, or heroin or methamphetamine or something are, are really acute instances that I've got to get my fix. Everything else in the world doesn't matter. Um, but that seemed to be that the, the counterpoint to mudita is that that kind of that gaping hole in your heart that can't be filled, like a hungry ghost, uh, the endless craving of a hungry ghost. So there's a few thoughts on that area. Thank you. My next question is, uh, when you spoke about the second noble truth, the cause of suffering, you spoke about the three types of tanha. Mm -hmm. And usually when, um, when I've studied this, we speak about the self-grasping ignorance as being at the root of the, the cause of suffering. So the question is, how does this self-grasping ignorance square with the three types of tanha? And the second thing is, is the tanha of existence one of the links of the twelve nibbanas, the tenth one, the craving to become, becoming? Just uh, something to know. It lines up somewhat. <laughs> um, because uh, like the craving for sense pleasure, it, it doesn't have so much of a, a clear sense of I, it's just like a, a, a wanting of an object, and there is satisfaction can come from that. So that you could say that the, the bhava-tanha, the, the desire for, for defined being, defined existence, is in a way closest to, to that. But you, know, you probably have to have a discussion to say, well, what do you mean by that self-grasping? What are the aspects of it? And you could sort of see how they, they lined up. Um, because I would say that, like the collection of, of dogs who live here in, in the village, or the, the birds that are chirping in the trees, they don't have the thought, I. <laughs> they don't. But they certainly, they, they want and they fear and they, they hate, they aggress, they possess, they look after their eggs and their and they, they belong to their, their partner while they're mating and they're, they're keeping away predators. They, so they're not forming an I, me, mine attitude, but they're certainly motivated by those, those uh, forces. And so, uh, yeah, I, I would hesitate to say they, they line up exactly, but certainly in what I've been saying, that bhavatana, the desire for defined being, is, is close to that. The atavadupadana is... Uh, atavada, like Theravada, the way of the self, is like the clinging to the self-idea. So the, the four kinds of upadana, so one is clinging to sense pleasure, kama upadana, and then the uh, next is called uh, dit upadana, uh, clinging to views and opinions. The next one is silabat upadana, clinging to conventions and uh, uh, human agreements. And then atavadupadana, clinging to the aspects of the, the self or self-identity. So that would include all those different aspects of, of selfing that the mind creates. So, I mean, it can be interesting to line up the different expressions you get in different tr traditions. And sometimes they, they're a close match and sometimes they're not. Last one. When I attended teachings by Mingyur Rinpoche, he has a way of you know, speaking about the gap, the horizontal gap, and then the vertical gap, in the sense that there is the river of thoughts, but you, you're not inside the river. You're, mm -hmm. you, you're here. So there's a kind of a vertical gap mm -hmm. between the stream of thoughts and you. And he speaks of that as very much as valid as the horizontal gap, which mm -hmm. is normally spoken about. 
So I just wanted to know from the Thai forest tradition, or from your point of view, what do you feel about this vertical gap? I've never heard of the concept of a horizontal gap or a vertical gap until this moment. So I have no, uh, no comment to make. It's just, but experientially, it doesn't matter what it's called. But as long as there's a gap. I see. Okay, so that's the answer. Yeah. <laughs> and then, is there much spoken about the subjective clear light mind in the southern tradition? Uh, yeah, that's, because, that's uh, when we talk about taking refuge in the Buddha. Yeah. Or the, the Buddha being the, the, the awareness of your own, um, your own heart, your own jitta. Because the word, the ter, in, Thai, in the Thai language, the term puru, um, pu comes from purisa, purusha, meaning a person or, or the, uh, the agent. And ru is the word to know. So puru, um, it's both a, a part of the qualities of the Buddha, of the Buddha puru, puru, and pubhagwan. But also it refers to the awareness of, of your own jitta. And so the forest tradition, they talk a lot about uh, the nature of, uh, of taking refuge in that awake, aware quality. And the attributes that it has alliterate very, very beautifully in Thai, sawang, sa'at, sangok. Sawang means radiant, sa'at means pure, sangok means peaceful. So a lot of the forest, because it alliterates quite neatly, sawang sa'at sangok. No. When that, that quality of awareness is unobstructed, then the subjective experience of that is brightness, uh, peacefulness, and purity. So. Sorry, so what you mentioned, would you say rikpa would line up? The word rikpa? Well, rikpa what, means... Or are you rik- making a distinction between rikpa and subjective clear light? The, the word rigpa is, is the same as the Pali vija. Marigpa is avija, ignorance. So rigpa just means awareness. And uh, if you are interested, uh, the whole week-long program I did here three, four years ago was on a chapter in that book, The Island, that focuses uh, on these qualities. There's two suttas which Ajahn Sumedha is very fond of quoting, um, where the nature of awareness is unusually it's referred to as consciousness, as vijnana. Uh, and both of these suttas involve a, a Brahma deity. So there's probably some kind of Brahminical text that the Buddha was riffing on that I've never been able to discover. But sometimes he would, when he was talking to like a, a yogi or an ascetic, or he's talking to a, a cattle farmer, he'd talk about cows. When he's talking to a bark-clad ascetic, he'd use the, the Brihad Aranyika Upanishad as the sort of basis. So there's a theory that he was kind of quoting from a, a scripture related to Brahma, uh, Brahmas. But anyway, the, the phrase that is used is in this teaching to describe that uh, that quality is vinyanang anidasanang anantang sabato babang. So the vinyana, the consciousness or the awareness, anidasana, which means non-manifest, kind of invisible or non-manifestative, which is a really long English word. Non-manifestative, it doesn't have any um, uh, manner of manifesting. Uh, ananta, limitless, uh, measureless, infinite, sabato pabang, radiant in all directions. 
Uh, and when I was listening to, uh, to teachings by uh, Tsokhni Rinpoche um, many years ago, it really struck me how his description of, of, uh, of Rigpa of, as um, uh, cognizant in nature, unconfining capacity, and uh, radiant, uh, that said, oh, that, that sounds familiar. And so uh, that whole chapter is chapter 12 of the book, The Island, uh, as when you get a chance to look at a copy, uh, which is um, about that and, and, and kind of lines up the Tibetan rendering of it and the Pali. Should have been here three or four years ago. I had a whole week on it. <laughs> Actually, the recordings are, uh, are available so that... Uh, when the retreat's over and you can access a, a device once again, then uh, you can find all of that. So, Thank you, Anya. I had a question on the state of dreaming. For example, uh, you said, throw the question, uh, who am I? And the blank, and suddenly the consciousness kind of merges with a thought. You feel that it's a state of dreaming and my question is, when the mind goes into that state of dreaming, where is the consciousness? The consciousness is aware of the dream also. And what is that state of dreaming? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, uh, again, I'm, I'm aware that in, in the Tibetan tradition they've done a, a lot more dream, uh, dream, dreaming. Um, I think there's even a book by His Holiness, uh, Dreaming, Sleeping and Dying. So yeah, in the Tibetan world, they have a whole dream yoga, and I think Mindraling Rinpoche was was a kind of the um, chief dream yoga teacher, uh, which is much less developed in the Theravada world. So dreams are not given a lot of value in the Pali Canon. There are times when the the Buddha speaks of dreams that he has that are significant. And before his enlightenment, they had five symbolic dreams that were referred to in the canon. So it's not like all dreams are sort of dismissed altogether. They can carry meaning and value. But generally speaking, being in a state of dream is uh, regarded as a kind of unmindfulness. It is possible to be aware uh, of being asleep. You can know that you're sleeping. Or the, you know, the mind can be aware, like, oh, my body is sleeping. And I've certainly had that experience a few times. Usually if I'm sleeping, sitting, sort of leaning against the wall, not sort of sleeping, lying, lying down, but usually if I'm uh, sleeping, sitting up. Um, uh, so you can be aware that the body is sleeping you know, and, and have the thought, you know, I am asleep. <laughs> but in terms of dreams, then generally speaking, they're an unmindful state. The, the, the mind is creating a narrative out of memory and... and imagination and association. Once in a while, I would say, once in a while, uh, everyone will have some kind of a dream that has got a, a, a very definite and useful message. There's something that appears in the dream that is, is valuable and meaningful. So that does happen from time to time. Um, lucid dreaming is something that is a skill that can be developed where you are, there is consciousness within the dream. So, you know, I am dreaming and not just being aware that you're asleep, but that I am dreaming, I am in this dream, I can make choices within this dream uh, and uh, make use of this environment that is being experienced. 
in this dream world. So lucid dreaming is possible. Uh, before I was a monk, I was very interested in that. I think in the um, Carlos Castaneda books, <laughs> way, way back in the early 70s, that the very first spiritual, spiritual book I read was uh, A Separate Reality by Carlos Castaneda. Um, and so in that, uh, Carlos Castaneda talks about his spiritual training by his teacher, Don Juan, and talks about the development of lucid dreaming and developing that as a skill. And so I was very interested in that um, and uh, developed some ability uh, at it. But then uh, one particularly lucid dream, I realized, uh, I'm in the middle of this dream, I'm wide awake, I am dreaming, I can do whatever I like. What do I want to do? And I said, I don't know. I really haven't got a clue. And I was, uh, and uh, and that was that was quite an awakening, you know, pun intended. It's like, wow, I've got a total facility. I'm wide awake in this dream world. I can do anything. And I tried flying. I thought, well, I could get about a meter off the ground. And okay, so I'm flying. It's not even okay. I'm flying. So so what? And uh, it was the sense of, you don't even really know what you want to do with your life, when you can do whatever you like. Oh. And so when I woke up from that dream, what I was left with was like, I really need to figure out what's important, <laughs> which direction I want to take with my life, because uh, when all the possibilities are there, I don't know what to do with it. So uh, certainly, I, again, I can't speak for dream yoga and how that's used in the Tibetan tradition. I don't have any real knowledge or let alone any expertise in an area. But uh, uh, I do know that uh, in some spiritual traditions, not just Buddhist, um, the world of dreaming is used specifically um, uh, for developing uh, spiritual qualities. And um, the uh, a person that I knew in the Bay Area actually did, did a PhD on lucid dreaming. Uh, a woman called Fariba uh, was called um, Encounters with the Divine in Lucid Dream States. And it was like uh, within the, the tradition that she was coming from, actually meeting with entities that had a, a lot more wisdom and spiritual qualities and receiving teachings or guidance and, uh, and help uh, from, from beings that were encountered in dream states. So there, it can be developed, but... Uh, Personally, I chose the waking world of the forest monastery as my, <laughs> my domain of activity. So, so that's a little bit about dreaming. But generally speaking, it's not given a lot of value in the forest tradition and uh, it's generally seen as a somewhat deluded state most of the time. Yes? Venerable, my observation or question is when eye uh, consciousness dissolves, then my experience becomes experience. Uh, then uh, what is that which expresses this uh, experience? Means you have to again make a, a kind of temporary self in order to express that uh, experience because there is that experience has been recorded somewhere. Hmm. Or there's a presence of onlooker even if there is no self when I-ness is totally dissolved. And secondly, uh, second thing is that uh, related to this is, uh, don't, don't you think that's uh, kind of uh, a particular traditions in any religion or uh, particular kind of uh, uh, following of rituals in any religion 
Don't you think instead of dissolving eye, they they fossilize the eye uh, more in a way that you you are identified with a particular thing or particular tradition? Thank you. To uh, thank you to to address the first part first of all. So. Uh, even when the sense of I has dissolved, it doesn't have any strength or, or, or uh, substantiality, the personality still carries on. And that's one of, one of the things you notice about one, not just the enlightened disciples of the Buddha in the stories, they have very different characters. You know, Ananda was very sort of kind and thoughtful and solicitous, and you know, Sariputta was had this sort of brilliant, uh, sort of comprehensive knowledge. And Moggallana, there's kind of about two Dhamma talks by Moggallana in the whole Pali Canon, but he was, had super duper magical powers, <laughs> but he wasn't much of a Dhamma teacher. Uh, uh, Mahakasapa was a great ascetic and praised asceticism and, and austerity. Um, so each of the enlightened disciples of the Buddha had their own kind of speciality. And just within the, the, the great elders I've known or heard, heard of in, in Thailand, they're very, very different personalities. So uh, yeah. Ajahn Man uh, was known as, uh, as being extremely quick-witted. He was a brilliant speaker. Before he was a monk, he was um, there's this kind of folk singing uh, in Thai, northeast Thailand called Mor Lum, where you have like two. Sing- it's a kind of rap battle um, uh, that they have as a folk, with folk song, and the two people up on stage, and they each have to make up a verse, um, and then one has to counter the other, and you always try to end with a w- with a word that the other one's got to find a rhyme for, so you try to end with a really difficult rhyme. And it's all spontaneous, and it's with, you know, live on stage. And, and the young Ajahn Man was a brilliant Molam singer, apparently. So that ability carried on Dhamma teaching. So he was a, a brilliantly expressive and um, very compelling as a speaker. Um, uh, his teacher, Lumpur Sao, was extremely taciturn. He was a man of very, very few words. On one occasion, he, he got up onto the Dhamma seat and he invited to give a talk, and he just said, It's good to be good. Hey, <laughs> Wang. That was it. That was the Dhamma talk. You know, and that uh, apparently, according to the stories, then when Ajahn Sao was spending time with, with his student, Ajahn Mani, it's like, How have you got so many words? <laughs> Where do they all come from? Like, because he was, Ajahn Sao was a kind of wordless guy. <laughs> just didn't take shape. And Ajahn Mao was like, well, it's, it's this kind of, it's just, it's all just there. Uh, Ajahn Tate, another Ajahn Man's disciples, was known as extremely gracious and uh, and calm and kind of uh, regal in his manner. He was very, very polite, very gentle. Very, uh, very sort of serene and contained in his manner. Uh, Ajahn Mahabur is like a kind of uh, roughneck boxer, uh, a kind of bare knuckle boxer. <laughs> and very, if you read his Dhamma talks, he's very, there's a lot of punching and you know, knocking out the kalesas that have to be carried out the ring on a stretcher. And <laughs> you never hear Ajahn Tate talking in that way. You know, so the, the, even though there they might be arahants, still the personality carries on and the body is still there so that uh, even without a sense of I am mere mind or the Lord Buddha himself you know 
he still had his own character, his own his own attributes and personality. The body carries on as long as breath lasts. So that the way that we function in the world, if this is you know, what you, what you're asking about, it comes uh, comes through the personality that we have, the body we have, that still part of the same family. <laughs> Uh, in one sense, you know, when when they're speaking about the Gotra, the the, the lineage, when the, the the Buddha returned to his hometown Kapilavatu, and his father King Sudodhana was very upset at his son going on arms round with his arms ball through the streets, he's saying, "You're a disgrace. You're a kshatriya. You know, you're a warrior noble. You can't go begging through the streets with a begging bowl and an arms ball. That's just that's not what we do in the in this lineage." And he said. I belong to the lineage of the Buddhas, like to his dad. <laughs> Not being disrespectful, but yes, he had gone back to, to Kapilavatu to, to visit the family and to, to spend time with them. And, and he was respectful towards his father, but uh, it's like, yeah, that's our biological family. The Kshatriya would not walk through the streets begging with an arms bowl, but... Uh, uh, I, I belong to the lineage of the Buddhas, so that this is my new gotra. <laughs> this is the deeper gotra, and so that it's not it's not shameful in the slightest. Uh, and a similar story when um, when Ajahn Chah was invited to the to the palace in Bangkok to receive a, an honorary title, and um, you know he came along with his arms bowl and all the other senior. Uh, monks who were receiving these titles were more sort of academic city monks, uh, administrative monks. And one of the monks said to Ajahn Chah, aren't you embarrassed to be eating out of your bowl? And then Ajahn Chah said, aren't you embarrassed not to be? <laughs> he was also pretty quick-witted in that, that respect. Yeah. This is this is what the Buddha ate from, a, from an alms bowl, so aren't you embarrassed not to be eating out of an alms bowl? So your second question, remind me what that was. Does the organized religion uh, traditions fossilize the I instead of dissolving it? Because we are all the time conscious about our traditions. This tradition, that tradition, Tibetan Buddhist, or Thai, or whatever. So don't you think that our particular rituals that we perform, they further uh, fossilize our identity with the I? Uh, to quote William Shakespeare, aye, there's the rub. <laughs> That's the, one of the, the downsides of organized religion, is that it becomes fossilized. And then what starts off as a skillful means and something that is useful, it gets uh, turned into a, a fixed ritual and is given inherent value. And then it's forgotten that it's only a skillful means and it becomes the way you have to do it and I am a Theravadan or I am a Vajrayanist or I, I am yeah, this or that. This is the way it should be done. And uh, that rigidity becomes an obstacle. I feel it's one of the uh, advantages of not having been born in a Buddhist family. <laughs> I'm not sort of saying that it, if you have been it's a problem but I think in terms of circumstances, having come into the field of Buddha Dhamma with no background in it and no conditioning around it, going up to, to adulthood with no ideas, never heard of the Four Noble Truths. I thought the Buddha was Chinese. I was actually living in the monastery for three or four months before I found out the Buddha came from Nepal. And, uh, 
uh, and you know, the um, Sakya region. I thought he was Chinese. Uh, I was, we were cleaning the shrine. The, uh, we were cleaning the shrine before the moon down. I said, yeah, it's really funny. These Buddha images, they all look Indian. <laughs> and the, the other novice looks at me and says, why is that, why is that funny? And I said, well, he was from China. I said, kind of gave me that look and I said I was always ready to be an expert about anything from the age of three upwards I was always I was uh, assured I had all the facts and, and he said the Buddha was not from China the Buddha the Buddha was born in Nepal in Lumbini and uh, on the sort of Nepalese Indian border Kapilawatu in the Sakyan kingdom I said no no everyone knows the Buddha was from China so <clears throat> he kind of pointed me at a history book and said Oh, good heavens, I was wrong. So I knew, I knew nothing. And so that, I felt, in, in retrospect, was quite an advantage. So you're coming into it without any kind of familial expectation and such like. So you can relate to the customs and forms of things that you have acquired. Uh, and uh, uh, funnily enough, I'd noticed that when you went to a, a new school or to a new college or you began working for a, a job, like I used to go you know, fruit picking or do manual work on building sites and such, on the first day, you don't know anybody, you don't know where anything is, you don't know the names of the buildings or the places or the tools or, or anything. And then after two or three weeks, three or four weeks, it's like you've, you've kind of been born into that realm and everything, the value system or the, the people and the places and the things, the tools and the such is, uh, it's now familiar territory and you can uh, watch that world come into being and, you, and I've seen that a few times in my life and when I arrived in the, the monastery in northeast Thailand, the International Forest Monastery uh, and I, really knowing nothing at all yeah, I'd never even read a book on Buddhism. I'd been to the teachings of His Holiness Dujong Rinpoche, but it went so completely over my head, I didn't even follow it up with finding a, a, to, a book on Buddhism to read anymore. So uh, uh, I had that feeling, okay, now you can watch a world come into being and just see that value system arise. Because I you know, knew nothing. I never heard of Theravada or Mahayana. Uh, I, you know, I, knew, I had no background at all, never heard of the Four Noble Truths, uh, nothing, uh, uh, zero. And so uh, then, of course, six months later, I thought, well, this is a good Ajahn, that's a bad Ajahn, yeah, this is the way you bow, this is the way you don't bow, and <laughs> all these should do, shouldn't do, this is right, that's wrong. But I had that, uh, I kind of consciously noted as I stepped into it, okay, now watch this world come into being, because right now there's, there's a totally blank sheet you know nothing. So, remember this moment. <laughs> and then, then all of those acquired value systems, then they're against that backdrop of, this is all just learned. There isn't really anything here. You know, six months ago, none of this meant any, anything to you at all. Now, there's all this, this is good, that's bad, this is okay, and so on and so forth. So the more that we can cultivate that sense of, these are just human agreements, these are just conventions that we've adopted, then we can use the conventions without being limited by them. And this was a, a theme uh, that Ajahn Chah used a lot, and that even though he was a very strict and, and, and so well-behaved well monk, you, know, you could see in his manner he, was, he, he used the conventions, but he wasn't limited by them. He respected them. 
and he didn't need to to defy the conventions to to not be limited by them. But he would talk about that. You know, this, these are these are just conventions. He'd sit up on the Dhamma seat and say, "There is no such thing as Buddhism, really. There are, and, or there are no people here. There are no women, no men, no monks, no nuns." And you could tell a number of people going, "I'm a monk, aren't I?" <laughs> but he's sitting on the Dhamma seat saying, "These are just conventions. These are just human agreements." There isn't really any such thing as ordination or Buddhism, Theravada, Mahayana. These are just ideas that we agree to call something and we give it value, but there really isn't anything there. And so you would frequently talk in those terms, not that so that you defy or just disrespect the conventions, but you remember, this is just an agreement. Like I was saying about money, you know, that the... the the twenty-pound notes with the queen's head on, or the late queen, they're they're valueless now, and the ones with King Charles on, they are now worth twenty pounds or fifty pounds. <laughs> so it's a human agreement, and the, it takes a bit of work to notice those agreements and to reflect on them, and not get caught into them, especially when everyone around you is <laughs> buying into them. But I feel that's one of the, the great blessings of. Um, a, a, a you know, wonderful teacher like, like Venerable Ajahn Shah was that he could use the conventions with great sincerity and impeccability but yet not be burdened or limited by them. It's a, a great skill. Speaking of conventions, it's now 10.51 by this clock so let's draw things to a close for the morning.